0: So I want to thank you all, uh, so many of you. The last uh, few weeks, it's been about a month now so I've had my little injury. Sorry, I'm going to blow it up right here. i got this like Air Jordan thing where it sort of encases it, so it's actually really comfortable, so I felt a little weak there. I want to thank you all for your uh, compassion and kindness. You know, it's sometimes um, tough for me. I have to admit this. It's tough for me to accept help. I can be a little counter-dependent. And so actually a whole bunch of you have offered me help in this past month in which there's a few things I haven't been able to do really well. And if there has been a blessing, and actually there's been a whole bunch of blessings in being injured, it's been this, that in being forced to slow down, physically slow down, I've noticed that something else has opened up, which is my perceptions of the world just seem to have broadened a little bit more in some very positive ways, such as receiving those kindnesses that you have offered to me. Just this, uh, maybe two weeks ago, I was um, in a in a high rise in which I was at the very, very far end uh, corner of the hallway. And I was headed toward the elevator. And someone I could see all the way down the hall, it was maybe 40, 50 yards away or something, I could see that um, they had just gotten on. And they got on and they must have caught a glimpse of me limping along because this person just stuck her head back out. And she said, are you coming? And I said, yes, I'm coming, but I'm coming slowly. And I did my version of running, you know, which is this, to try and get there because I didn't want to have them wait. You know, I wanted to be polite. And um, when I got there, I said, I really appreciate you holding it up. I really appreciate you holding the elevator. And um, she said, well, it wasn't anything at all. And I said, actually, it was. Because the other thing I've become mindful of in this time, when I've been sort of injured in this way, is how much unmindfulness there is in the world as well. How many people, because I am slower, slightly, and I want to stress slightly addled, pass me by or view me as an impediment, see me as something to get around, maneuver around, something in their way, getting to where they are trying to get to. And one of these things happened particularly a couple of weeks ago, same week actually as that really kind lady on the elevator. I was in a store and I had was buying only one item. I had it here in my hand. And sort of here I was walking in this direction. There was a display right there. And right over there, the first row was where the checkout line was. And I was making my way over, very slowly, and I could see out of my peripheral vision, out of the corner of my eye, this couple over here. And they were headed, like, in the same trajectory I was, except I was headed there, well, at least I thought, first. And I could see them speed up. And then, literally, when there wasn't much room between me and the display case right here, they did this. They turned like crab length and they sort of sidled on through, so as to get by me. Not their faces face towards me, just like you know, heads down, trying to get because it was so important that they get to the checkout line. And the guy of this couple said, "Yeah, sorry," and they you know, kept get right on going. So those are the other things I've noticed. And although I do want to stress this, this is very minor. Eventually, I'll be done with it. Even if I have to live a month or a couple more months with it, it is all right. It is a very temporary, very minor form of being disabled. But still, I do have to say that living with it has reacquainted me this last month with the power and with the abuse of privilege. Now, when I say privilege, I say it particularly in this way. That privilege is the power not to see what is there. To choose not to look upon or even to acknowledge another person's suffering or another person's struggle. And perhaps even in ignoring it, to be a cause of it. I've learned in this past month, again, it's something I knew before. But sometimes there's something about being reminded of something with your body that is a great way for us to really get it. That the antidote to this kind of privilege is the power of patience. This message series that I started a couple weeks ago has been all about recognizing, honoring, cultivating, even celebrating the spaciousness within us, the spaciousness within us that can exist within light and within shadow, and that I believe when we can honor the spaciousness within ourselves that it also allows us to do something else to exist beyond our privilege, to exist beyond our ability not to see what we don't want to see, what gets in our way, or what is unpleasant for us, or what is something we want to maneuver around. When we can slow down enough and really stop to see the sufferings and the struggles of other people, it also gives us this time, the time to respond. Not just to be passers-by, but the time to respond. This message series, one of the inspirations for it, is this wonderful quote by Carl Jung, the great psychologist who really in the 20th century was really the first teachers to fuse the insights of the psyche with the insights of the soul. And he said this, one does not become enlightened by imagining that there are figures of light. One becomes enlightened by learning to make the darkness conscious. I'll say that again. One does not become enlightened by imagining figures of light, but by learning to make the darkness conscious. Making the darkness conscious takes time, and it takes patience, especially when we are looking upon a reality that scares us, or we don't know how to handle, or we think we have no way to approach it that's healthful, or we just don't want to take the time to approach because we think it's going to get us off course of the life that we are meant to live. But if we can practice this patience with what is obscured or hides in the dark, we will find ourselves growing into deeper connection. I want to use as an example today this phrase that we hear about all the time and has affected some of us very personally, the Great Recession. It is spoken about so often as if it is one thing to everyone. We know that at the end of November, if you've been paying attention to the news or wherever you get your news, the unemployment rate went up again, 9.6 to 9.8. We know that it has affected many of us personally. i got to tell you, and many of you know this already, that as successful as Wellsprings has been, the fastest-growing new Unitarian Universalist congregation in the last 20 years, that's over 200 congregations, as much as we have grown, we've been affected. Myself and everyone else on this staff here. On the staff of Wellsprings, had to take a pickup. We're part of the world, the world suffers, we feel it as well. But what I also know is that this time has not affected all of us equally. This past week, I read that unemployment rates for people of Hispanic origin are 50% higher, 50% higher than they are for people who are Anglo. And that for black people, the unemployment rate is almost fully double what it is for people with white skin. I consider myself one of the lucky ones, especially when I read something like this current thing that I'm going to tell you. That for people like me, people with college education, people who, like me, have post-grad education, you know that the unemployment rate is less almost than half of what the national average is. And three times less than people who do not have a high school diploma. This recession has been difficult for so many of us. I know that many of you have had to deal with pay cuts or cuts to your 401k or benefits being taken from you. It has been so difficult for so many of us, but I believe that it is a lie to say as so much of our political conversation does that we are all living in the same reality right now, that it has been the same for all of us. It has not. And it is an act of privilege, of refusing to see, to think that it has been the same. And indeed, it is very often the people who struggle the most, whose stories we see the least, who are the most invisible to us, who are suffering the most right now. And I give for you this little cartoon. It's not a ha funny cartoon. I saw it in the Christian Century, the progressive spiritual magazine. And it asks, if you can't see it, see the 45 million poor Americans, arrow blank. That's the problem. Sometimes when we do hear these stories, it's almost as an afterthought. I find it completely galling that after this horrendous political season that we came through, and I'm not just talking as a progressive who found the outcome horrendous, not something that I personally like. I'm talking the process, how we talk about politics I didn't hear Democrats or Republicans talking about the poor. Heard people talking about the struggling middle class and the rich. As if everyone falls into that. Well, 45 million people don't. So when I heard this story, I wanted to put my head in my hands. All of us. States individuals, our country has been living beyond our means for too long, and so we know that the time of reckoning has come, and that's absolutely necessary. But the question then for all of us, and it's a question of priorities and who we think counts the most, who is going to bear the brunt for those cuts? And then I read a story like this, that in Indiana, by necessity having to balance their state budget, did it in this way, that they started to cut off aid to the families of children who have adult Developmentally disabled kids. And when those Medicaid reimbursement checks stopped coming in, and the parents were justifiably worried about how they were going to care for their developmentally disabled children, the caseworkers had this response, at least to some of them. If you cannot afford their care any longer, here's a choice you have. You can choose to leave them at homeless shelters. When I first read this, the name that came to mind, perhaps one of the most famous names of this holiday, of this Christmas season, Tiny Tim. Perhaps the most famous disabled person at this time of the year. Now, I love Charles Dickens. He is one of my favorite authors because he, like me, is a sentimentalist. (laughs) He loves happy endings. I mean, when I read Dickens, I cry, and I like that, and I like the happy endings at many, not all, but many of his stories. And I think if there's one movie that's on cable more than any other thing this year, it's Christmas Carol. There's the, I think, Lifetime Movie Network version with Judith Light. What was that? Not Saved by the Bell. What was that thing she was on in the 80s, the sitcom Who's the boss? Thank you, Tony Danza. I forgot him as well, too. She's in the Lifetime movie version, where, you know, the main characters are female, and then there's the animated version, and then there's the Bill Murray Scrooge version. Over and over again, almost every day this holiday season, there's a version of A Christmas Carol. And it's been turned into a wonderful, sentimental tale. But Dickens was not just a sentimentalist. He was a social critic. And if you've read enough Dickens, you know that more than anyone else and no one more effectively turned his light, and it was a harsh light of truth, upon a London in the 1880s and 1890s, in Victoria-era London, in which there was effectively no social safety net for the poor and the vulnerable, the orphans and the widows, in which the poor themselves were left to abusive, badly run private charities, or they were sent to debtors' prison. There are some people in our country right now who talk openly that the secret to the future of America is taking us back 100 years or taking us back 200 years. I believe that what they are doing is exactly what Young said we should not or cannot do. They are imagining figures of light to try and get us out of a tough time. People who want to take us back I want to take us back to what Dickens' London was like, in which a few people prospered and many people suffered. And many people suffered very, very badly. Those famous last words of a Christmas carol, you know what they are? God bless us, everyone. In that story, there's a happy ending. It's a wonderful ending. Tiny Tim's going to get cared for, no debtor's prison for his family. And Scrooge has a change of heart. It's a wonderful redemption story. But Dickens, you know, was a Unitarian. And those words are not just a happy ending. They are a challenge. They are a challenge as old as the universalist dream is. God bless us, everyone is not just about saying, Oh, there are happy endings. Let's celebrate and rejoice. God bless us, everyone is a challenge to really mean those words. Everyone. Now, some in this time also just aren't particularly bothered, just don't care that there's, you know, suffering and folks with privilege who are just not real conscious of the fact that other people are struggling. And here's a little internet meme that I'm going to share with you right now. This is a guy named Privilege Denying Dude. Looks pretty smug, I think. Uh, internet meme, if you know an internet meme, is, it's a commonly recurring uh Overly reproduced. I think there are thousands of these right now of privilege-denying dude. And I like this one. You know, it's, it's deeply impatient. God says, I'm right. I cannot be challenged. End of conversation. The next one I particularly like as well, too. I said something that is true. Therefore, everything I say is true. End of conversation. No more discussion. I am so right within myself that there is no possible way I can be challenged. And I like this one as well. I like this privilege denying dude especially because it kind of looks like me. Makes me uncomfortable a little bit. I teach black kids to read. What do you mean racism still exists? Like I said, I like that last guy because he's got, you know, this white guy scruff that I'm working on right here. And it makes me uncomfortable because I, I sometimes, too often to be honest with you, take my privilege for granted. Hope not to be this obnoxious, but I still can do it anyway. And then, of course, there are those in this nation in this time of such immense suffering celebrate the privilege of some over others, believe that's the natural right of things. It's almost medieval in its thought. This past week, I read about a representative who in this past month from something called Tea Party Nation, there are tens of thousands of followers of this group, felt that it's actually a really good idea to go back and think about those original words in the Constitution. Those original words in the Constitution, because clearly the Constitution was divine script given to us, never intended to be changed, was perfect as it was, that truly it's a good idea if we revisit that only property owners should be able to have the right to vote folks I rent (laughs) some of us do but for those of us who do care for whom it's not enough to say people struggle and I don't know what to do about it so I'm going to ignore it or it's just a natural thing some people were born lucky and that's all right. Some people born unlucky, and that's all right, too. But for those of us who want to pay attention, it's very challenging because there are no quick and easy answers. And sometimes we also know that the superficial or sentimental answer, well, that can even cause more harm. I want to share this in just a second here, but let me ca- let me put a little caveat. I like you two. I'm going to share this you two story. I like you too. I like Bono. I think he's someone who actually has used his privilege in such a way that it benefits other people. But at times he gets kind of... Preaching, and I use that in a negative way. He gets kind of sanctimonious and sentimental. I mean, I love the first time, summer 1983, when I found my protest music when I was given that Sony Walkman for my bar mitzvah, and I popped in "War" by U2, and I said, "Okay, no longer do I have to listen to my parents' Bob Dylan records to get protest music. This is our generation. This is mine." Well, Bono sometimes, if you have seen U2 in concert, he likes to do this, and I've heard this has happened. The response more than once, in which he quiets everyone down, quiets everyone down, stop clapping, stop the cat call, stop, and just starts clapping slowly. And he says, every time I clap my hands, another child in Africa has died. To which the response once came, then stop clapping your hands. (laughs) I think that's true. See, sometimes even spirituality can lead us to ignore the sufferings of the world. Especially if you believe that things just are as they are and, you know, that's nature. Spiritual stuff is what it is that the is of things implies the ought of how they should be. A number of years ago, I was having a conversation with a friend of mine who had become a Buddhist. This was maybe 15, 20 years ago. At that point, I had no real spirituality of my own in a true practiced and practical daily sense. And so I was looking to poke holes in his theory. That's the way I rolled at that time in my life. And I thought about, okay, this thing of karma... You know, if truly everyone suffers what they need to do, then I don't see why there should be, I wasn't actually saying this myself, I was just trying to play devil's advocate, that truly we shouldn't do things like, you know, focus on how evil the Holocaust was or how awful slavery is because, well, those groups are just the reincarnated, you know, presence of people who have suffered in a past life and this is, you know, interfering with their desire to have to learn what they need to. And my friend put on a big bright smile on his face and he leaned back in his chair And he said, my friend, you have just committed what we call in the Zendo, karma abuse. It is using the theory, the theory of karma, to escape your own and our own responsibility to awaken with compassion to this world. Not to use some theory to escape To escape and say, oh, we will just get away and pay attention and say, well, if this person is sick, if this person is poor, if this person is suffering, they must have done something to deserve it. And I have no role in responding or in being a presence. I believe that is, whether it's karma abuse, whatever you want to call it, a form of abuse. And it is no form of mature spirituality. There's a woman named Joanna Macy, who's a teacher I really like, and she is a teacher and associated with what's often called engaged Buddhism. It's actually a school or a practice of Buddhism very much associated with the person whose name we hear every week here at Wellsprings. This is Thich Nhat Hanh. And Joanna Macy says her approach to the spiritual life and to suffering and working for justice is this. Notice there's no guilt here in what she says. We are free, of course, to seek escape from the suffering of our world. But the price for such comfort is high. It is my experience that the world itself has a role to play in our awakening. The very brokenness of the world and its need call out to us, summoning us to walk out of the prison of self-concern. And as we do that, as we venture into danger and uncertainty in service to life on this earth, Discoveries await us. She finds this teaching at the very moments of the Buddha's historical awakening. She finds it in two things that I'm going to show you right now, if you'd show that next slide. In Buddhist tradition, they are called mudras. Hand signals. And the first one is this. You see, just before the Buddha awakened, he was approached by the figure of Mara who represented illusion, who was really trying in a almost a final temptation sort to say, why are you trying to awaken? It's all an illusion. Do not work this hard. Just don't pay attention. But the Buddha does not answer Mara with any words or with any authority other than this. He takes his hand, and in the first of these mudras places it right down on the earth. And that, he is saying, all of us spring from one common ground of being, In modern ways, we might say all of life is interdependent and I am awakening to exist in relationship with everything that is. That is my vow. In our own tradition with Emerson, we may call it the oversoul, what he calls the wise silence that exists and is a part in each and every one of our lives. That is the first place from which we get the authority to pay attention to the strugglings and the sufferings of the world. And the second is this the second mudra. As opposed to the fist that punches out or to the cloistered self that seeks protection, this is what the Buddha teaches all of us to offer to the world. The unafraid and open-handed palm. Recognizing that all of life is connected and we can do this work unafraid. I love this way of understanding that it is that spaciousness that is naturally a part of us. If we would honor it, that it will take us without guilt, without privileged impatience, without easy answers out into the world day in, day out and learn to face the sufferings that are there and to work for something that is better. Last week I talked about praying with, the capacity of praying with, whether we call it namaste or the light of God or Buddha nature or whatever it is. Praying with, rather than praying for escape or praying to something to come save us, rather praying with the fullness of our divine spark. If we pray with, we recognize that we can do the work of compassion and justice-seeking each day in our lives without getting burned out, because as we go further out, we also go further in, and we can witness for wholeness and dignity and love. It is part of our dream here at Wellsprings that we will be continuously a community that is not just about Sunday mornings and not just also about each other. Perhaps the quickest way to say this is that I finally believe our charged full lives cannot remain charged full when we are exclusively or primarily plugged back in to ourselves. We are still very young as a community, and what we have done so far is good. And again, there's no guilt in what I say this morning, only a call and only a challenge for us to continue growing. Guilt ultimately does us or the hurting world no good. Guilt is disempowering. Guilt makes us feel bad about what we haven't done and encourages us to do less. That's not what I'm talking about. I don't know exactly what our answers will be, but I do know that as part of our maturation here at Wellsprings, there are some models or guides that I would like us to take a look at of who we could be in this world as we face its immense suffering. And sometimes it's darkness. In 1985, I saw these words all throughout the subways of New York City. A full 13 years before the Unitarian Church of All Souls on 80th and Lexington ordained me, this is how I came to know their name. At a time in which people with AIDS were dying and being treated as if they were... In biblical times, lepers. All souls felt a call to just begin raising consciousness and letting people know that their house of worship was a safe place for people who were being marginalized by almost the rest of the entire world. Eventually, All Souls AIDS Task Force, I had the privilege of being able to administer one year as their seminarian in the mid-90s. I got to work with amazing groups that were on the front lines like Gay Men's Health Crisis that really helped people who were struggling and suffering both with lack of education and also with the disease themselves to help them get resources. It started with one person saying and believing this. One person in one community saying we are called to do something. AIDS is still here with us. We all know that. Privilege makes us impatience and wants the minute we snap our fingers for things to come true. But this work to really face the sorrows of the world isn't quick. The other example I want to give you is something that is actually very, very recent. And not from a tradition that I am used to praising. It is the Mormon Church. Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I think their teachings on human sexuality are doing a tremendous amount of damage. And so, I had to place some of my prejudices aside when I saw in the past month that the LDS church in Utah, Lily White, Utah, saw what the state of Arizona was doing with their immigration policy. That was probably illegal and very often inhumane and ultimately probably not going to be terribly effective either. And the LDS put their full weight behind what is called simply the Utah Compact that says immigration is a national issue. Yes, we need to secure our borders, but we need to recognize that all immigrants in our midst, legal or illegal, they are part of families, they are part of communities, and that their dignity is non negotiable as we make our way through this time. Let me tell you, the LDS church saying that in Utah has a lot of power. And of course, this immigration mess will not be solved quickly. But by casting their light in this way, they have said what they stand for. And so their patience is not one of passivity but diligent work in witnessing to human dignity. We are a young community here at Wellsprings. There is much good that we have done so far. Our work with the clinic has raised tens of thousands of dollars to support their mission. And in January, we're going to be inviting some representatives to the clinic here on Sunday so that those of you who would like to volunteer your time to form a deeper relationship with the clinic, will be able to. We believe that the work they are doing in the world is of such good, and we want to support it. But we know, as we go deeper here at Wellsprings, it will mean confronting and challenging ourselves. It will mean sometimes digging at the very heart of privilege, which is the desire to want things quickly. Emerson, who represents both the best and the worst of our tradition. The best would be that oversoul stuff. The worst would be this, in which he said, when skating on thin ice, our safety is only in our speed. Now, actually, I'm not actually sure that's correct. I know the only way it's correct is if we view ourselves as isolated individuals. If, in fact, we view ourselves as in relationships, and interdependent and connected to each other I would say the worst advice possible if we're all on thin ice is for our safe to be and our speed because then the only ones that will escape from that ice will be the ones on the outside and the rest will fall through if instead we see when we are on thin ice that in fact we are not there as individuals we are there as community we will do this we will link arms with each other And we will recognize that even as the ice breaks, as sometimes it will, our circle can still be unbroken with our brothers and sisters. And we can help pull them out before they drown. I think that Wellsprings has many, many things that not just we will do, but many ways that we will be. To worship, which means to give worth to our human dignity and to combat human suffering. In the new year, we'll be launching an addictions ministry, addictions and healing team that evolved out of the work of one of our small groups. That is just one way. But I believe it's not so much about the specifics, although each of us will be called to different things. It is more about that consistent commitment to share our light and to learn to face that darkness fearlessly. I have to tell you that this is the way my heart is beginning to break open. I am becoming more and more aware of the privilege that I take for granted. And I believe that of all of our addictions in this society... The most damaging one to ourselves and others is this. Is that the good life, as the Greeks meant it, the meaningful life equals a comfortable life. I think at times we are called to transcend the limitations of our privilege. To go into those places in which we are not comfortable for the good of ourselves and for the good of the whole world. And I wouldn't be sharing this with you today if I didn't think we were ready. And I didn't think this wasn't a big part of the path that's going to be in our future. I don't want to have the last word here today, so I'm going to give Elizabeth Edwards the last word. Because I think she had a lot of insight into a lot of things. And particularly into what patience and daily work means. These are the last words she ever wrote on her Facebook page just before... I believe the day before she died. She wrote, The days of our lives for all of us are numbered. We know that. And yes, there are certainly times when we are not able to muster as much strength and as much patience as we would like. It is called being human. But, I have found that in the simple act of living with hope and in the daily effort to have a positive impact in the world, the days that I do have have been made all the more meaningful and all the more precious. And for that, I am grateful. Amen. And may you live in blessing. Let's pray together. Let's pray with each other. of source, of deep being, may we love ourselves enough to challenge ourselves, to recognize all the life that is still within us that there is to give and that this life expresses itself through standing for justice and witnessing to love and practicing compassion. When we face, as we do, The darkness, the scariness of the world and what we feel is beyond our ability to shape or even give ourselves to in any way. May we call ourselves back and back and back again to the heart of life, that divine heart of life that is relationship. And to that fearless quality of existence, that knowing there is that foundation from which we spring further encourages us onward. Amen.